Hello and welcome to PolicyCast from the Social Market Foundation with me, James Kirkup. The Social Market Foundation is a think tank based at Westminster, but we don't do party politics. We do research and evidence. In these podcasts, SMF experts will be talking to you about their latest work, shedding some light on the big issues and telling you a few things you won't hear from politicians. And we're going to be talking about booze. This is what is called the alcohol harm paradox. So although people on the lowest incomes drink less on average, they're more likely to die from alcohol-related deaths. And actually, the figures are quite stark on this. Today, I'm talking to Scott Korf, SMF Research Director, about some work he's done on alcohol duty. How much tax do we pay on drinks? So, Scott, uh, let's start with the basics. Alcohol duty. How does that work, then? So... Alcohol duty has to be one of the most dysfunctional parts of the UK tax system at the moment. Um, If you look at the way we tax alcoholic beverages, it's taxed incredibly inconsistently. So to give some examples of that, we tax beer and spirits according to how much alcohol is in the product. Makes sense, doesn't it? Which makes sense. What we want to do with alcohol duty is target where the health problems and so on are generated. Mm. And that's about the pure alcohol content. But with wine and cider, the tax is based on the the volume of the final product produced. So this means that a bottle of high-strength wine is taxed at the same rate as a bottle of low-strength wine. So there's very limited incentives with wine and cider to produce lower-strength products. When we look at the chart showing the different levels of duty applied to different strengths of alcoholic drink, it's it's all over the shop, isn't it? Yes, and to give some examples of that, if we uh, look at a 6% alcohol unit of cider, Mm. this is taxed at about 7 pence per unit of alcohol. Not very much. Um, Not very much. And then if you compare a 6% wine to that, so this is sort of a, a wine that's been engineered to be very low strength, that's taxed at 50 pence per unit of alcohol. Right. So it's more the tax on a, that low strength wine is more than five times as much as the tax on the same strength cider. This is why we started doing this project, isn't it? We, we were questioning why do we tax alcohol? What are we trying to get out of this? What's it, what's it for? The current mess, if you like, you know, the current inconsistency, how, how did we get there? Why do we do these things? Well, it's really a range of reasons. So a lot of it's down to politics. Is Alcohol duty is a very politicised tax instrument. <laughs> I mean, if you look at where the changes have been driven in recent years, a lot of it's been driven by the politics of alcohol. And quite often it's been driven by quite a romantic image of alcohol production. So with cider duty, for example, a lot of people talk about jobs in the, in the southwest of England, in orchards, in cider production. Uh, and also, the, the, the production is quite geographically and politically concentrated, isn't it? I mean, yeah, there's a relatively small number of constituencies where that, that industry potentially matters quite a lot. So jobs comes up a lot in, in the debate around alcohol duty, the need to protect jobs, particularly whiskey production and cider production in the UK. If you actually look at the figures on this, even in the southwest of England, cider does not employ that many people. And similarly with spirits production in Scotland, I wouldn't really say any part of the UK is that dependent on alcohol production. I think the the jobs argument in defence of the current duty regime is really rather weak. And in particular, when we look at how strong the linkage is between production and jobs in the UK, quite often it's very weak. 90% of the Scotch whisky produced is exported. So what happens to spirits duty in the UK doesn't have that much of an impact on jobs in the whisky industry. And similarly, quite a lot of cider we consume is imported. Not all of it is a craft beverage produced with lots of apples from the southwest of England. You mean to say that that lovely image we have of bucolic, rosy-cheeked farmers strolling through the the sun-dappled orchards of Somerset and Herefordshire. Uh, that's not what's producing two-litre bottles of mega-diamond blast white or whatever it is. Well, exactly. And that, that, 
that clearly highlights how different the, the political image is of this with the reality. Of course, I mean, you talk about the politics of alcohol. It's a very familiar subject in politics, isn't it? One of the great set pieces of the political calendar is the budget, and one of the heart of the budget, almost the first question that people will ask is, probably after petrol prices, what's happening to alcohol? How much has duty gone up on wine or spirits or beer? Because it's one of the simple, one of the great sort of tropes of media and political communication. How much has this pint of beer gone up? And so this has always been a sort of sensitivity for a lot of politicians in that you, there's a view that you've got to be careful putting too much tax on, particularly on the pint of beer or whatever the, the working man enjoys drinking. Um, but we've been looking at the figures, haven't we? When you actually unravel this question a little bit of who is drinking and what they're drinking and how much, the politics change a bit when you look at the data, don't they? Well, that's right. Well, and really what we've looked at in detail in this report is who is drinking and where they are drinking and what are they drinking. And I think that one of the key things to note here is that overwhelming majority portion of alcohol consumed in the UK is from heavier drinkers. So heavier drinkers account for a very high share of alcohol sales in the UK. And they drink very specific products. We, we know from our analysis, some of the research we've drawn in this, in this research, that heavy drinkers tend to drink cheaper alcohol products. They tend to drink stronger alcohol products. So that means they're more likely to drink spirits. And then they're also more likely to drink higher strength beers and higher strength ciders. So there's a very strong distributional angle to this report. On that, talk us through the overall volume of alcohol being consumed in the UK. What's the trend? So the trend in recent years has been actually a slight downward trend. So alcohol consumption per capita in the UK peaked in 2004, but we're still drinking more as a nation per person than we were in the 1960s. And but we're starting to drink less than we were in the, the peak of the Blair years or whenever you want to date that to. Yes. There is a gentle decline across the board setting in, but within that, that overall trend, even as we collectively drink less, there are a group of people who are drinking a lot and harmfully much. Yeah, this this sort of materialises in the alcohol death statistics. So alcohol death rates in the UK are much higher than they were in the 1960s, 1970s. If you look at some cross-country comparisons on this, in, in the nine, early 1970s, the UK had a very low rate of liver disease deaths compared with France, Italy and Spain. Now the UK's got a higher rate of liver disease deaths than those countries. So the situation's reversed, uh, reflecting our higher rates of alcohol consumption. We really are enjoying the Mediterranean lifestyle. Mm. And then I think the, the other important angle to highlight here is who is feeling these ill effects yep. of alcohol consumption. So if you look at the data, people on higher incomes tend to drink more than people on lower incomes. Yep. About three in 10 people in the lowest income group that we looked at don't drink at all. That's less than 10% amongst the highest income quintile. When I reviewed this report a while ago, having been spent 20 odd years around Westminster, engaged in lots of conversations about policy and tax and things like that. And yeah, that was one of the facts that really surprised me. I didn't know that. I did not realise that teetotaling, abstention, zero alcohol consumption was so pronounced among people in the lowest income group. As you say, 28, 28% of people in the bottom income group drink nothing at all against what, 6%, 7% of people in the, in the top income group. Basically, the more money you've got, the more you drink and the more likely you are to drink. On average, that's true, yes. But I think part of the reason there is this misunderstanding is that actually if you look at who's dying from alcohol consumption, this tends to be people in, in the lower income group. So This is the paradox of alcohol. Yeah, this is what is called the alcohol harm paradox. So although people on the lowest incomes drink less on average, they're more likely to die from alcohol-related deaths. And actually, the figures are quite stark on this. If you look at a man in the, the bottom quintile of deprivation, 
he is four times more likely to die from alcohol-related illness than someone in the top quintile, someone mm. from a much more affluent area. Even though, statistically speaking, he's also less likely to drink at all. Yes, and there's a, a lot of discussion around what might be causing this. So one argument that's given is that if you look at the really extreme level of alcohol consumption, people drinking very heavy amounts, that might be higher amongst the low-income mm. low group although on average people drink less. And then the other thing that comes up quite a lot in these discussions is how the health effects of alcohol consumption are multiplied when combined with other bad habits. So if you if you smoke, if you have a bad diet, if you don't exercise much... All, all things that are associated with, with low-income groups. Yes. And if you're, if you're doing these things and you're drinking, the health effects multiply. So that's the income dimension of all this. On the whole, in these podcasts, we try not to talk about Brexit. But we have to here, don't we? Because there's a question that arises in the question of alcohol duty. You mentioned it earlier on, talking about wine. Some of the reason that we tax alcohol in the way that we do arises from our European Union membership, doesn't it? That's right. So as well as the UK politics being part of the reason why alcohol duty is such a mess at the moment, it's also, it's also a reflection of EU regulation. So some of the EU structures directives place principles in how alcohol should be taxed. And one of those is wine must be taxed according to the volume of the final product, which means it's impossible under, under the EU regulations to tax wine according to the alcohol content. Which means you can't, you can't use the tax system to encourage reductions in wine, in wine strength, say. And we'll come back to that. You come back to that shortly. So that was I so that's a, a quick tour through where we are and how we got there and what the consequences of that are. That's essentially the situation, the problem if you like with duty. And now we're going to talk about our responses to that problem of duty. What do we think we should do? How do we make the duty regime better, more efficient, more sensible, I suppose? So talk us through the SMF's recommendations to, to politicians on how they can make sense of the alcohol duty mess. Right. When we thought about how to redesign alcohol duty in this report, really we had one clear principle in mind, which is you want to focus alcohol taxation to where the harms are being generated. Mm. So really to have an optimal system of alcohol taxation, you want to be taxing the drinks that are most associated with problem drinking. And you want to reduce taxes on drinks generally consumed in a responsible way by people drinking relatively low levels of alcohol. And the evidence points us in clear directions on this. As I as I mentioned, we know that the heaviest drinkers drink stronger products, they drink cheaper products, they're more likely to be drinking alcohol at home rather than in pubs, bars and restaurants. So two very key dividing lines there. It's strength and on trade, off trade. You know, how strong is it? And, and do you buy it in a pub to drink in a pub or do you buy it in a shop to drink elsewhere? Those are the, the, the dimensions of this, aren't they? Yes, so two of our five principles of alcohol duty reform that we set out in this report are on those issues. So one is introducing what we're calling a strength escalator for alcohol duty, which means we have a clear tax system where stronger products are taxed at a higher rate than weaker alcohol products. This will create much stronger incentives for producers of alcoholic beverages to reduce strength, and it would help steer consumers towards these lower strength products because they would be relatively cheaper. Which is sort of going, to a degree, is going with the grain of public behaviour at the moment. There are some trends towards reduced consumption and also trends within consumption of people we hear from the industry are keener to buy weaker products. 
Yeah, and part of it's being consumer-driven, so tastes are changing. There's a growing interest in among some demographics uh, in health-related issues. They need to live a healthier lifestyle, which is steering them towards lower or zero-alcohol products. Um, but we also know from our research, from what we've, what we've studied as part of this research, that tax can steer producers towards lower-strength products as well. Mm. So Carlsberg, for example, has reduced the strength of, of its product in response to the duty system. So duty, if it's structured in a way that favours lower strength products, can cause innovation in the sector. It can cause producers to produce lower strength products. And reward the ones that do. Yeah. That duty, now the, the on-trade, off-trade distinction, the pub versus the sofa at home, if you like, where do you think we should go on that? This debate's been going on forever and will probably go on forever. You know, are pubs dying? Should we save the pub? Are, ta- are pubs being taxed out of existence? What, when we have again seen that shift in consumption historically away from pubs towards drinking in the home what's our brilliant idea to, to to make sense of all this so what we propose in this report is the introduction of a, a pub's duty really which would allow pubs bars and restaurants to claim back some of the duty costs associated with alcohol so this would effectively reduce the relative price of alcoholic beverages on on the on-trade and prices would be relatively higher in the off-trade so you'd be shifting the balance of alcohol taxation from pubs, bars and restaurants towards alcohol products consumed in the home. As, I, as I've said, these are the products more likely to be consumed by heavy drinkers. And also these products are, are cheaper. So we know there's a clear link between heavy alcohol consumption and price. Mm. We really really want to tackle those very cheap, very low quality beverages. And, and this is one way of focusing taxation more on those kinds of drinks. The ones that are, that are most strongly associated with problem drinking. Okay, so we've helpefully put all this together into a handy chart to answer that question that people always ask about budgets and always want to know about any any change in duty. Essentially, what is this going to do to prices in the shop and prices in pubs? So I'll highlight a few a few examples from your handy table here. So if you, if you apply the uh, the SMF policy matrix to, to duty, where do you end up? At the moment, a pint of lager in a pub containing 2.6 units of alcohol. Currently, we think say, it costs £3.60. That might be a bit, a bit modest for Westminster, but anyway. If that costs £3.60 at the moment, applying all these changes, we think that would come out at new regime £3.35, so 25 pence off, off a pint. Cider, however, doesn't do quite so well under our uh, our proposed regime, does it? Because at the moment, you, know, you mentioned earlier on, we have a slightly inconsistent regime because at the moment cider incurs very little duty, and so cider is really quite cheap. So pint of cider in a pub at the moment, that costs you £3.60, containing three and a half litres of alcohol. Our policy would put that up by 14 pence for a pint, up to £3.82. glass of wine in a pub, we think, would actually drop slightly from 4 95 for a small glass, down to 4 71 in the pub. Again, because the amount of duty you pay on that product is going to be related to how much alcohol there is in it. This, I won't go through the whole table, I'll probably single out the you know, the big change. Um, we, we did some pricing on uh, a product called Crofter's Apple Cider. Two litre bottle of Crofter's apple cider in Tesco currently sells for two pounds and five pence, uh, and that gets you ten units of alcohol. Uh, ten units of alcohol for two quid. We think that's probably a bit low, don't we? We think when you apply our our, our policy mix to all this, that's going to go up to three pounds fifty six. So you know, a seventy five percent price increase for that bottle of strong cider. Tough times ahead for cider makers. But yeah, the, the the point of that. I mean, just recap the thinking behind all those changes. So what we're what we're doing here, you notice from this table that a lot of the prices of on trade beverages, so beverages consumed in the pub, would go down under this new regime because 
because we know problem drinking is more concentrated in, in the off-trade. Cider is, at the moment, given a substantial tax advantage. We're talking about levelling the playing field for products of the same strength. So the price of cider would go up under our current regime. So, so that cider, where it is a lot stronger, cider tends to be a lot stronger, you know, pound for pound, as it were, than beer at the moment. We are suggesting that the alcohol in cider should be taxed in the same way as the alcohol in beer and everything else. That's Yeah, as long as the products are the same strength, yeah. they should be taxed in at the same rate. That's one of the principles we outline in our reports. And some in the cider industry will clearly not like this news. But what I would say is this is what the situation will be if you're offering the same products that you're offering at the moment. There's nothing to stop producers from offering weaker products. Mm. And there's nothing to stop producers going into into more premium products, which are less price sensitive. Uh, people are willing to pay more for a product that's good quality. Really, what we're trying to address is these low quality, high strength, low price products, uh, which are only consumed by a, a small proportion of the population. Quite often people in very bad circumstances. And we know these products are associated with a wide range of health problems. And obviously, yeah, publishing this report just as ministers are thinking about, well, they're thinking about two things. They're thinking about budget. They're also thinking about possibly a general election. And they're thinking about the B word again. They're thinking about Brexit. And yeah, without taking a view, because we don't take a view on whether or not Brexit, good idea or bad idea, assuming Britain does leave the European Union, there is theoretically some scope for more change, for more creative policymaking around alcohol duty, isn't there? Yeah, if and when we do leave the European Union, we won't be tie, uh, tied to the, the EU structures directives that constrain how we can tax alcohol. So this really opens up the opportunity for the UK to, for example, tax wine according to alcohol product rather than the volume of the final product. So you can have better incentives to produce lower strength wines, similarly with cider. So you can really get a much more rationalised duty system without those constraints placed on us by the EU structures directives. So there are some real opportunities there. Those directives essentially exist to protect and preserve the interests of uh, winemakers in France, other EU countries. Yeah, and the the UK wine industry, don't forget, Mm. very very important industry. Um, And as part of this study, we looked at alcohol duty regimes in other parts of the world, and particularly in Europe. And you see that the problems we see in the UK are replicated elsewhere. So countries tend to have favourable tax regimes for the drinks that are produced in those countries, which on the continent tends to be wine. So... Mm. A lot of countries have no no wine duty at all in Europe. Australia has similarly dysfunctional alcohol duty system to the UK. It's almost as if the world over, politicians were slightly reluctant to apply levels of tax to products that people like a lot and are emotionally attached to. Indeed, and the only country we identified as having what we consider a very rationalised alcohol duty system was Singapore, which is uh-huh. which is a country with very low rates of alcohol consumption anyway. And, and a slightly different democratic political culture. But uh, but actually, Singapore, yeah, we talk about Brexit, quite quite popular with some members of the Brexit-loving community. Interesting thought there. Well, it's a, uh, a very handy tour of the SMF view of alcohol duty in its future. Scott, thank you very much. Thank you. And that's all from us. That was PolicyCast from the Social Market Foundation. Thank you to Scott Corf for joining us. If you'd like to read Scott's full report, you can find it at www.smf.co.uk. Thank you to Barbara Lambert for producing this fine podcast, and thank you for listening. Bye-bye.